another episode of the Beulah Girl podcast. For links, related resources, and even more encouragement, visit BeulahGirl.com. Hey friend, thanks for tuning in to the Beulah Girl podcast. I'm Carol Whitaker, your host. I'm going to be continuing on with this episode, a series that I started before Christmas, a series on what happens when we believe God's words are true before Christmas, leading up to the um, Christmas season, I focused on several individuals from the Bible, and I wanted to continue on with that series. I know it has been a few weeks since I've done an episode. Um, I did take a few weeks off after Christmas, but I'm excited to be back tonight talking about Balaam and his story, which can be found in Numbers 22. And I'm going to be looking specifically at Balaam and the issue of double-mindedness and how that can make us very inconsistent in our Christian walk. And this story that I'm reading tonight is one that I haven't heard a whole lot of sermons on. In fact, I've never heard a sermon on it. And it's not a story that I really am that was that familiar with other than I've known about it because it's the story of the talking donkey. So I've seen the story in children's books and I was familiar with that aspect of it. But as far as Balaam, I did not really know much about him until I delved into his story for this episode. And what I uncovered was just so rich. I could probably do five more episodes on him. There's just so much that we can glean from his story found in Numbers 22. But I want to be focusing on specifically tonight, as I mentioned, the issue of double-mindedness and how that really makes us inconsistent. Having a divided heart can make us inconsistent in our Christian walk. This past weekend, my phone died. And if you're like me, you basically are just helpless without your phone. And I don't know how exactly it happened, but I'm very attached to that device and I'm a little bit ashamed to admit it. But I just, basically that phone goes everywhere with me. Um, I rolled over and looked on my nightstand when I was getting up in the morning and the screen was completely black. I couldn't turn it on. And I had somewhere to go with my daughter that day. We had an event we were going to. And so my husband offered to take it to the Verizon store. We knew it's an old iPhone. We knew that it was kind of on its last leg and that it probably wasn't going to make it much longer, but we're hoping that it would hold on till at least the spring but it it died and so my husband offered to take it and so i went to the event that i'm um an event with my daughter and my husband took my phone to go to go see about getting a new one see if it was indeed dead or if it could be revived and it was an odd day honestly because i'd never leave the house without my phone if i can help it um it is my gps um i'm always texting people if you know i'm going to be running late or you know, texting my husband to give him information. You know, I use it for literally everything. When I'm waiting on a kid in carpool line or something, I'm pulling up an article to distract myself. I, you know, if I come up with an idea for a post or something for my blog during the day, I will type it in in my notes section. So, I mean, I check the weather on my phone. I literally use that thing for everything. So it was an odd, it was just an odd feeling. And I know that 20 years ago, we survived without phones. Um, You know, we actually had things like pay phones, which is funny, but we used pay phones. We would 
you know, have to actually talk to humans. If we were lost or needed directions, we, we'd have to go into a store and ask someone or buy a map or something. But, you know, it's just with um, smartphones now, it's just, I'm just adjusted to a totally different way of doing things. So it was an odd day. But when I came back home, my husband had gotten me a new phone and he had also taken the effort to transfer all of my contacts and pictures and everything over to my new phone. However, my old phone, they did get it to turn on. Um, and so when I got my new phone, um, I had, you know, all of my apps, but some of them had to be reinstalled. And so I had to go through like each one and, and put in my password as if I was installing it for the first time even though the little image was there. And you may know a lot about technology and know why this is. I really have no idea. I can't explain this. Maybe it has something, you know, I don't know. But I had to go through. And here's the thing. I am really bad about remembering passwords and I couldn't remember my password for my iPhone. And I knew I had it written down somewhere, but I knew I was gonna have to reset it and possibly just choose a new one. So I was busy when I came back and my husband gave me my new phone and then we you know we had stuff going on the next day as well so i did not actually get a chance to sit down and reset um my password and and reinstall all of my new you know all of the apps on my new phone i didn't really have time to do that until really two days later and then it, so i had for about two days i had this really odd experience of i could text and call on my new phone but if I needed to like get on Facebook or use um, an app for like the devotional I do in the morning and things, I had to use my old phone. So it was this weird experience of going between two phones and it drove me a little crazy. And finally, you know, about by Monday, I was like, I can't take this anymore. I have to transfer and consolidate and get everything onto one phone because this is just not working. So I tell this story because this can be applied to more than just a phone situation. And I realize that this isn't, you know, like a huge deal to have to look between two phones, but I'm just giving the small example of how it drove me a little crazy because as I was preparing this article and this whole phone situation happened, it, it just kind of struck me as being, you know, applicable here because what we're talking about in this episode is, being divided in our devotion to God and double-mindedness. And in our Christian life, you know, the Bible talks about not being divided in our devotion to God. And there's a good reason that it talks about it. A divided heart is one that is distracted and unable to focus on what it should. Matthew 22, 37 tells us, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. And you notice in that verse that all is mentioned three times all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. So this word all literally means our whole self, all the parts of us. And that's what God wants of us, all the parts of us. And similarly, we see in Matthew 6, 24, it says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So this is, it's this idea of, it's not that we can't have other things that we care about or love, you know, God created us to be in community with other people. It's a, it's good to have relationships where we have, a, you know, loving, meaningful relationships with others, where we have hobbies and interests that we are involved in, where we have outlets where we can share our gifts with others. Those are all 
good good outlets and good things for us to have. It's not that we can't love other things, but we are supposed to love God above those other things. And we get into trouble when we raise anything up above um, God in our life. Um, when we try to serve not only him, but something else that we, we raise that up and then we begin to obey and follow that rather than um, God. And to illustrate this idea, we need only look at the story of Balaam in Numbers 22. Now, as I mentioned, Balaam is this guy who has the, a few odd experiences where he's on this journey and his donkey actually talks back to him. And that may be that, you know, God enables his, his donkey to speak, which is a little bit strange, but his story is odd in a lot of other ways as well. And we're actually not going to be focusing really so much on the part where his donkey speaks as really the events leading up to the journey that he goes on. And that's, we're going to be gleaning these ideas about double-mindedness and what it looks like to have a covetous heart or a heart that's divided. And what we see about Balaam is he looks pretty good on the outside in a lot of ways, but he does have a divided heart. He desires wealth and prestige and honor and yet he is not completely bent only on his own desires he also we see in his story has a desire to do what god tells him and he seeks to obey god so it's this strange mixture of a person trying to obey god but also very much attempting to follow and obey his own desires and he gets himself into quite as you know a few situations because he has two you know two desires really pulling on him the desire to obey and the desire to follow his own path so when we first meet balaam he does seem like a pretty good guy in fact the first time i read through this story not really being familiar with it i'm just gonna be honest i don't hang out in the book of numbers all that often but he appears like he's one of God's prophets, but the Bible does not refer to him as a prophet. They refer to him as a soothsayer um, and other places in scripture, it kind of fills in the blanks of um, what Balaam is viewed as by his actions. But when we first meet him, he does seem like he might just be a prophet. Um, he is sent, um, some messengers are sent to Balaam with a request um, to curse the nation of Israel. Balak, the Moabite king, is concerned. Israelite, Israel is advancing near his land, and he wants Balaam to pronounce a curse on the Israelites. Now, Israelites, they are, in this point in history, about to um, progress into the promised land. And Balak, the Mo Moabite king, is, is watching their progress, and he's very concerned about this huge you know, group of people advancing near him. And so he sends messengers to Balaam and he wants Balaam to curse this nation. And Balaam, when we first meet him in, in the story, he appears to be, you know, just this very faithful prophet. He invites the messengers to stay the night and he says, you know, let me ask God what I should do. And over the course of the night, he receives this reply from the Lord. And we read this in Numbers 22, 12. The Lord tells him this, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. In the morning, verse 13 tells us 
that Balaam tells the messengers exactly what the Lord said. And he says, go back to your own country for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So he basically says, you know, the Lord will not allow me to go with you, but he doesn't really tell them why. And, you know, at at first glance, it seems like, okay, Balaam is listening to God. He's doing what God has said. He's obeying. But what we notice in his reply to the messengers is that he doesn't entirely close the door on the king's offer. Rather than say, I can't go with you or do what you ask because God will not permit me to do so. He says, instead, the Lord has refused to let me go with you. It's It sounds, you know, if we investigate into it a little bit, it sounds, his answer is a little bit reluctant. It doesn't sound like he is really firmly saying, I can't do this. It's more like, well, God doesn't want me to. And he does send them back, but rather than firmly close the door on the offer, he leaves a little room for a better offer. And I love um, what the the biblical illustrator, it's a collection of commentary, but I love what it says um, on this passage. It records um, some commentary from the SS Chronicle, and the SS Chronicle says this, there are many people who say no, but so faintly that there seems a yes in it, so that it only invites further persuasion. Many a man tempted by appetite within and by companions without says no, feebly and faintly his no has a yes in it. Might we say that Balaam's um, and okay, yes, and and that's where the quote ends. But I guess my comment here would be is that might we say that Balaam's no leaves room for a yes? Well, yeah, I think so because he tells the men, "I can't go with you," um, or I'm sorry, he says, "You know, God will not allow me um, to go with you." But there is sort of this faint room for a yes within his no. It's not a firm, "I can't do what you ask." And when the messengers return and tell Balak, Balak is not thwarted by Balaam's no. He's a pretty shrewd guy, and Balak assesses correctly that what might change Balaam's mind is a promise of a greater reward and more distinguished messengers to convince him. So he sends back a new group of messages and messengers, and apparently it's not a really short journey to Balaam's house. And they go up and go. So then in in Numbers, we see in Numbers 22 that a second group of messengers shows up with the same request. Balaam, again, if we're just reading the story the first time, we may just skim past this part and not notice, but Balaam doesn't turn the second group away. Even though Balaam already knows God's stance on the issue, he invites the second group of messengers in and prays a second time asking to find out more from the Lord. Again, on the outside, his actions, they look good. They look pretty good. I mean, he's asking the Lord for more information. He hasn't disobeyed God directly. He hasn't gone with the messengers, but he does invite them in. I mean, he already had enough information with what God had told him the first time. He didn't need to ask God a second time. He'd already been told by God, do not curse this nation. Um, but he, he asks a second time and invites the messengers in again, he's sort of cracking the door open to sin a little bit further and even putting a bigger yes in what was his initial no, because he had no need to even let the messenger stay. The, the, the answer from God was really clear. He, he can't curse this nation. So why is he entertaining these visitors? Why is he saying, you know, I'll ask for more information from the Lord there is no need for him 
to ask again. But we see that Balaam is doing what he's doing because he's hoping to receive a different response from God. He wants the honor of association with the princes, the reward that we offered, and he wants the favor of the king. And we have to notice what happens. Numbers 22, 20 through 22 says this, that night God came to Balaam. This is the second time and said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. So I want to just pause for a minute. This is a very strange, I guess, twist in the story. But again, on first reading of this, you might just kind of skim past this. But the second time that he asked God about going with these men, it appears, you know, by what it says in the scriptures, it appears that God says, you know, go with them, but do only what I tell you. But here's the weird part. When he actually does get up and go, it says that God was very angry and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. So did God change his mind? Why did God first say he could not curse the nation, but then permit him to go with the men who are leading him back to the king? You know, does God contradict himself? So if you study this, scholars provide different arguments on this issue. And there's a lot of good um, points of view that they bring up that are very much supported by the story. Some say that God gave Balaam over to his sin because he was determined to go that way. Um, some say God granted Balaam permission to go as long as he did not speak a curse. You know, some say God wasn't angry at him for going, but was angry at him, you know, maybe for a different reason, the condition of his heart. I mean, there's all kinds of theories. And some say that ba Balaam um, never really heard from the Lord. What he thought was the voice of God that second time was really just the voice of his own desire telling him what he wanted to hear. And, you know, again, with all of these interpretations, I can find truth in them. But I think for the purposes of this article, one that really resonated me with me was my last explanation explanation I mentioned, and that is that many scholars do say that Balaam may not even even heard clearly from God and heard really just the voice of his own desire telling him to go. Because God had said at the very beginning, do not go with these men. And it seems odd that God would change that and say, okay, you can go, but just don't, don't, um, you know, only say what I say, do not speak a curse. Um, and also this reading of that would help us understand why God would permit him to go, but then get angry with him for going and send an angel to block his path. I mean, maybe God really never said go to begin with. Maybe again, it was just his own desire and God was standing firm with what he said originally, which was don't go with these men. And what we see, which I'm not going to dwell here a long time, we could do a whole nother podcast episode, but when Balaam actually does go on his journey, he is opposed by this angel, but he doesn't see it at first. His donkey does. And he, you know, the donkey turns aside to a field because of the angel, crushes Balaam's foot against a wall, lays down under Balaam and refused to go. And then finally in the story, um, talks back to Balaam. God enables the donkey to speak. And it's just this odd story of Balaam's trying so hard to get somewhere on his journey, but he's being opposed by God. And it and it's very interesting, but he's very determined to keep going. And there's even a point where he, Balaam does see the opposing angel and he says, you know, he repents 
because he realizes God's angry at him, but he keeps right on going. So, and, and, and it's just this odd, odd, you know, series of events that really depict what happens, the contradictions that happen when we attempt to obey God and attempt to obey our own sinful desires at the same time. It doesn't work. So when we observe Balaam's actions, what happens to him, we, you know, the passage does appear kind of confusing and contradictory. However, we know that the contradiction doesn't exist in God. God is not contradictory. God is capable of no sin. So we have to say, okay, the contradiction exists in Balaam. And if we think about it, Balaam's actions perfectly depict what happens. You know, when we have warring desires inside of us and, you know, we're attempting to obey both and it leads us all over the place. James 1.8 tells us that a double-minded person is unstable in all they do. When we look at what it's talking about in James, it's talking about what we see here in the story of Balaam is he's he's double-minded. The word double-minded used in the Greek means one who has two souls. One is directed towards God, the other directed towards the world. Balaam's actions are inconsistent because he is torn apart by his two desires. And later, you know, we're not going to get into this part of the story because again, for time's sake, we, we don't have time to jump into all of this. But later in, in um, uh, verse 38 of this Numbers 22, Balaam finally does reach the king in his journey. And Balaam does say he can only speak the words of God. He holds true to that in the presence of Balak. And he doesn't speak a curse over Israel. He only speaks a blessing. And again, if we read this the first time, it seems like, okay, you know, Balaam is only speaking blessing. He's he's not directly disobeying God by speaking a curse. Um, he is doing some, some good here in speaking only blessing. But, you know, it's just this series of contradictions of speaking God's blessing, but disobeying him in other ways and attempting to get the this wealth and honor from the king when God doesn't want him to curse the nation of Israel. And if we look beyond Numbers 22, we see Balaam that his desires stop competing with each other and one actually wins out and we see that this Balaam who in Numbers 22 is so intent on only speaking the word of the Lord refuses to curse the nation um, we see later that this Balaam advises Balak to seduce Israel to worship other gods and commit sexual immorality and that Balaam's advice leads to the death of 24,000 Israelites and because of this wicked counsel, because of Balaam's refusal to faithfully serve God only and desire to follow his own desires, that he is referred to in other places scripture as just really the epitome of an evil guy. And we are warned not to go in his way. So the question is, why would he not curse Israel at Balak's request, but then go back to him and advise him on another way to destroy the nation God had said must not be cursed? So he's adamant about not cursing the nation, but then we find out later in Numbers 31 that he actually does 
go a roundabout way and get the nation in of Israel into trouble by seducing them to do things they should not do. So why does he do that if he is refusing to curse them in when we first initially um, meet him in Numbers 22? Bob Deffenbaugh of Bible.org has written some really great articles on Balaam, and he offers the insight that Balaam hatched the perfect plan to please the king so he could get what he was always after to begin with wealth and honor without de- directly disobeying God. He knew what the Israelites that the Israelites were bound by a covenant with God. Now, it's not really clear, Balaam, it's not really clear. Like he, you know, what is his status exactly? We know he's not a true prophet of God. He does hear from God. He does have a respect for God, but he also apparently is open to following other deities and you know he attempts to you know he's he's a soothsayer that's what it says in scripture that he attempts to get messages and he's he's not just devoted only only to God so you know we we might say um here he didn't he had enough respect for god that he didn't want to disobey him and he knew that he couldn't curse them directly so he goes indirectly and he comes up with this plan to indirectly bring god's curse upon them because he knew that there was a covenant relationship god had with the israelites he he knew enough about them to know that and he knew that if he could get the israelites to disobey god then that would bring god's curse upon them and so Bob Deffenbaugh says that essentially Balaam wanted all along to to please the king and and to get in good with him and get the rewards that he was after. So he decided, you know, since he couldn't directly curse them, he came up with this plan to advise Balak to bring God's curse upon Israel by encouraging them to sin in such a way that God you know the the old covenant in um you know god's original covenant with his people before jesus came was such that if they you know sinned god's curse would be upon them if they did good then his blessing would be upon them and that's how it worked and because of you know what jesus has done on the cross now as believers we we don't have the same regulations we have to live up to we have a much better covenant god is provided Jesus, Jesus has taken the punishment for us, for our sin. And so we no longer have to try to abide by the terms of the old covenant like the Israelites had to. Yes, we do obey because we love God and because it it is for a benefit that we listen to God, but we are not under the same, you know, regulations that the Israelites were under. So at some point in his return home from blessing Israel, Balaam allowed his heart to win the fight. Whereas in the first part of the story in Numbers 22, we see a man struggling with his competing desires. He eventually allows his own desire to overwhelm the voice of God, and he suffers a complete collapse of morality. Elsewhere in scripture, again, if you read Deuteronomy 23, 4 and 5, Joshua 13, 22, 2 Peter 2, 15, Revelation 2, 14, we see what happens to Balaam. And Balaam I guess you could say maybe even ironically is actually killed by the Israelites and you know initially probably enjoyed some status some 
rewards, some success with his encouragement to the king to uh, cause Israel to sin, but then he was let, you know, his own actions led to his complete and utter demise. So we are definitely given his story to learn from, to, to profit from, so we don't follow in his footsteps. And I love what TD, TT, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Munger says on what Balaam's action teaches. And this is um, from the biblical illustrator, but when talking about Balaam, this is what Munger tells us we can learn. It is the old story of humanity dallying with temptation in the field of the imagination, bribing conscience with fair promises, yet all the while moving up to the forbidden thing. I shall never become a drunkard, but I will drink in moderation. I shall never permit myself to be called a selfish man, but I will take good care of myself in this rough world. I shall never become dishonest, but I will keep a keen eye for good chances. Thus it is that men are passing to ruin over a path paved with double purposes. You know what, Munger, or Munger, I'm not really sure how to pronounce his name, but what he's really saying is he's making the point that many of us, like Balaam, we attempt to play with temptation and get near that which is forbidden without actually being overcome by it. But that is a game we will inevitably lose. If God has told us no, we need to abide by what he has said and stay far away from whatever it is he has told us not to do. You know, I've heard it said before that sin is kind of like a wild animal. We can't treat it like a pet. We can't, you know, invite it in and try to just expect to have it sit on our lap and coddle it and treat it like we would a, a sweet little kitty or puppy. It is a wild animal and it will devour us. Balaam had many chances. We see in his story in Numbers 22, he had many chances to shut the door on his temptation, but instead he entertained it until it eventually consumed him. And his story admonishes us not to follow his path and let our hearts lead us away from what God tells us to do. You know, this is a story that can be tremendously, I think, convicting. I know for me it was because I do struggle and have struggled with inconsistency. You know, one minute I'm I'm so bold and I'll talk, you know, I'll witness to someone and then the next I'm cowering in fear. And I want to do the will of God, but I have other desires that compete with his will and sometimes I win. And, you know, I think our struggles can all be different, but all of us have at times struggled or do struggle with double-mindedness. We we love God, but we love other things as well. And our love for other things competes with God's will for us. And this story is not meant to condemn us and tell us how bad we are. Um, it's just to make us aware of the reasons for our own inconsistency and, you know, meant to encourage us to give our devotion to God alone. Proverbs 24, 15 tells us, a righteous man falls seven times, but gets back up. So as believers, we are made perfect through Jesus' blood on the cross. When we come face to face with our own failures, we can repent and ask for God's help. We don't have to beat ourselves up for chasing after the wrong things. We trust God's promises in scripture and understand it. It is through Jesus that we have forgiveness of our sin and the power to walk away from the temptations that ensnare us and lead us from the path God has for us. If we are struggling you know, with inconsistency or hearing the voice of God, we, we can pray a few things. And I, I just want to lead you through a few things that we can do. So if we are listening to this and we say, okay, 
I really think this is kind of something I'm struggling with right now. Or maybe there's, you know, just we we kind of we feel like maybe the conviction of the Holy Spirit or we just feel something seizing our heart. Well, first of all, we come to God right away and we ask for his help. We confess. And we may feel guilt and shame that we have wandered away or chased after something harder than we've been chasing after God. But we lay bare our hearts before him and we tell him that we want to be devoted only to him. And we leave our guilt and shame behind. And we understand that it's because of Jesus' work that makes us perfect and we don't have to beat ourselves up for our failings. But we can leave those at the altar and we can ask God to help us, give us the strength to overcome those desires that will overcome us if we leave them unchecked. The other thing we can do is, you know, we can ask God to help us see. If we can't see it right now, we can kind of look at our actions and say, okay, is there an overriding desire or idol in our lives that is driving our decision-making? What desire of ours is seeking to lead us down the wrong path? What do we want so much that we are sacrificing our effectiveness as a Christian and obedience to God to have it? Because I think often what we can see, what God helps us to see is that often our sin will have an overriding pattern that it will be related to a certain desire. For instance, if we're a people pleaser, then we may have cut some corners attempting to please people rather than God. And we can see a string of actions that where we have attempted to appease people and it has led us to do the wrong thing. We are afraid of looking bad in someone's eyes or going against someone else. And so we did the wrong thing because we wanted to appease someone. And so we can see that our actions have to do with that. Or maybe there's another desire that, you know, we've raised up in our life, maybe a relationship, our desire to be loved, and maybe it's led to some, some unhealthy you know, situations, or maybe we're in a situation where we're just, we're not living within the, the, the guidelines of God's word in, in our, in our relationship, if it's a dating relationship, or maybe a marriage that we've, um, you know, we're seeking to look for fulfillment and emotional fulfillment outside of our marriage by certain flirtatious relationships outside of that, you know, whatever that is, um, it's all related maybe to our feelings of inadequacy or our desire to be loved. Um, and we're raising that up above really our, you know, God. Um, and then lastly, once we've identi- identified what desire is attempting to derail us, we can evaluate our actions that were perhaps made because of this desire. Are there ways that we have compromised? Are there actions we need to go back to? To um, Maybe we've just skipped over some some steps of obedience. Maybe God has really directed us to go a certain way and we've just ignored it because we've been afraid or we just, you know, uh, we wanted to go a different way or there, you know, we didn't think that God's way looked the best to us. And so do we need to go back to some things and say, okay, I need to buckle down here and be obedient. Sometimes there are things that we really can't go back to because we, we, you know, uh, we missed a person, you know, um, walk, you know, we don't see that person anymore. We don't, we can't get back in touch with them, but there are times that we can go back and we can do what God told us originally that we're running away from. And so are there ways that, you know, whatever desired is it leading is leading us in the wrong way. Are there things we can go back to, to make right because we've skipped over them or we've been disobedient, whatever it is. 
So those are all things that we can we can kind of evaluate. Um, I want to just close by, I know that I'm going a little over a little longer than normal, but I want to just tell you that, you know, um, that I'm a fellow friend here in the fight. And, um, you know, that there was a situation years ago where I know God told me no on a situation, an opportunity. And I really, really, really wanted this opportunity so bad. And I heard a very distinct no from him, but I was like, I just was hoping that I hadn't heard that. And so the day, it was the day that I was supposed to meet with this person and, and pursue this opportunity. I was supposed to have this meeting set up and it was that morning that I'd very distinctly heard from the Lord and I did not cancel the meeting. I went ahead and went and the whole, because I thought, well, you know, if it's really God, he'll make it clear. I'm not hundred percent sure, but it was more and more clear to me the further I went towards that opportunity that I needed to just step away from it. And I did not feel good about it. It's like my conscience was really bothering me. And so I emailed the person the next day and I said, look, I just can't be a part of this. But I just wasn't willing to let it quite go. And I had, you know, I was going to be doing a training. So I said, you know what, when I'm done with the training, can you just leave you know, can you leave a, a door open for me? I might be able to be involved after this training I finish. And I left it at that because I really just did not want to op- close the door on this opportunity. And shortly after that, God, again, his word came to me very clearly that I was to close the door on that opportunity, that I was disobeying, that he had told me not to be involved. And it just killed me because I just so much wanted to be involved in it. And I thought it lined up so well with what my calling was. And I just couldn't understand why God wouldn't let me be involved. But so I sent another email. And also, I just, you know, I felt like God was telling me to trust him to just completely sever that opportunity and trust him. So I sent another email. I said, I'm sorry, you know, I I wanted to be involved, but I think I just need to step away completely. And this other person, of course, is probably wondering, you know, wow, this person is just so weird. Why, why aren't they, you know, just, why can't they make a decisive decision? But the person was gracious and was like, okay. So I stepped away from it. I went to this other training. I stayed clear, but I'm ashamed to admit that a few months down the road, when I was almost done with the training, I thought, well, I, you know, maybe God's giving me the green light. Maybe it's okay for me to get involved with something now that I'm almost done with my training. I mean, that was my thinking, you know, was, you know, I I just didn't know all the reasons God didn't want me a part of it. And I thought, well, maybe it's because he doesn't want me to be overwhelmed in my schedule. And so this same person had another project that was unrelated that, became available. And so I'm ashamed to say that I thought, okay, well, it's a different project. It's not the same. I reached out to this person for the third time and said, you know, um, and made it clear that I had an interest in this other project. Well, the, the, you know, God was very swift to tell me that I had gone outside of his word, what he had told me, and I wasn't to be involved. Like, why was I not listening? And it's so clear to me as I look back now, but at the time it felt very confusing, but I just wasn't trusting God's, what he had told me originally. I just kept on hoping that his, his answer to me would change. And when it didn't, I just kept on pursuing, 
even though he had said, don't, don't pursue this opportunity. And now as I look back, you know, there's some reasons why I believe that God didn't let me be involved. First of all, I wasn't, I had some training to go to, but I wasn't entirely done with a project that he had asked me to do. And, you know, it was like, I was just trying to do too much and it wasn't in his will for me to be involved, but I just kept trying and trying. And so we get ourselves, I think sometimes in our situations where if we're not careful, it's like, it's not that we want to disobey God, but it's just that we want something so bad that we're hoping he'll change his mind. And we're not trusting that he has our best interest in mind. We're just trusting our own kind of what we think in the situation. And so unfortunately in that situation, I really lost the respect of the other person. Um, it just kind of created a, an awkward situation for me because I did appear to be really flaky and just appeared to have a complete lack of integrity. And I could see that, that it did, you know, appear that way. And so I, I say that all because, you know, this story, it, it is one that really digs in deep, I think, because our human nature is one that we do chase after things that we shouldn't. But God in his grace, in his grace and his mercy says, you know what, I, I, you know, I want you anyway, I can use you anyway, come to me, let's, let's deal with this, this, you know, this inconsistency, I'm going to align you with me and help you be steady in your walk with me and, and help you accomplish my will and say no to temptation if uh, we are willing. So let's just pray. Dear Lord, this story of Balaam is a tough one. It's tough because it strikes us to our core because we we are reminded when we read it about just how deceitful our hearts are. And it's really hard to look at ourselves as, as, as fickle as we are sometimes, to look at how unsteady, how wavering, how, as the hymn says, we wander far from you. We're prone to wander, Lord. And it's hard to look at that. But Lord, you give us this story in scripture to help us to know what we shouldn't be and to help us if we are double-minded to come to you and ask for help and to confess the ways that our heart has been divided and ask for help to be devoted to you because even in trying to love you and trying to serve you we fall short lord and we need your help to even do something as simple as love you so lord we ask that you would just help us in those places, help us to know what desires are driving us, help us to repent if needed, and help us to follow after you and to be obedient to the course you have for us, knowing that your way is the best way and the way of Balaam only leads to destruction. In Jesus' name, amen.